All right, the youth can be dismissed for Sunday school. Go ahead and follow the crew behind you. And the rest of us, go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 13. If uh, you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a chair within reach. Definitely look around and grab one if you can. And turn to the Gospel of John in the New Testament towards the end of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And as you're turning there, Happy New Year. Good to see you all. Welcome, especially those of you who are newer. Great to have you for worship this morning. We, um, we've been in a verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans, just a couple books after John. And we're taking a little break. We finished chapter 5 of Romans, and we will get back to chapter 6, Lord willing. Uh, but as we kind of set sail into a new year, it's good, uh, as Colby prayed and, and led us in the reading of the Word, uh, just to kind of take a little inventory, uh, think about where we've been, where we're headed, things to consider for a new year. And uh, as I was celebrating New Year's with my family last night, uh, back in the day I used to ring in the New Year, but uh, when that ball drops in New York, uh, I'm ready for bed. <laughs> That's enough. I can celebrate with New York and trust that the Lord will bring it in here at midnight as well as I'm sleeping. But as we, as we consider the new year, we kinda, we, it's good to ask ourselves, what are, what are some things, uh, some considerations, some, uh, some things to set our crosshairs on for the new year? Goals, uh, resolutions, whatever you might want to call them. We all have specific things pertaining to the kind of the particularities of our lives, things we want to do this year, uh, things that are sort of more particular to the station of life we find ourselves in. But there are other things, uh, things from God's Word, things of highest priority. And there's no, by the way, no better way to, to ring in the New Year than to, to sit under the teaching of the Word of God and consider together as a family in the Lord uh, what God would have for us, set our, really set the course according to scripture. There's many things we could consider from the word of God, but I think there's one thing as we're sort of embarking on a little mini-series before we get back into Romans on Christian foundations, maybe one thing that the Lord would have us put at the forefront of our hearts and the forefront of our days because it is, in many sense, the key to everything in the Christian life. The key to everything Uh, in life under the sun, on God's earth, under God's sun. And I think it's safe to say that that one thing is humility. Uh, Humility is that trait which God most values, the characteristic about a person that is most precious and important to God. Humility is, it's a servant's mindset consequence of faith in Christ, of receiving forgiveness through faith in Christ, humility where God is seen as all, all things are from him, for him, to him, unto him. We see ourselves as properly before God. We have an accurate, accurate view of ourselves as finite. Wisdom wasn't born with us. Uh, there were people 
nations and earth and certainly God before we existed. And so a proper mindset, a, a lowly mindset, a servant's mindset that sees ourselves as undeserving of God's love and his kindness. It's one way to think of humility. Isaiah 66 verse 2, God said, to this kind of a person, I will look. In other words, this is really what I value most, to him who is humble. James 4, 6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves, the scriptures say, with humility towards one another. Humility is really that key that unlocks more joy in your life. You want more joy? Grow in humility. There's a direct correlation there, absolutely. It's a fixed law that God has established in the universe like gravity. Humility is the key to more peace in your life, to freedom. Humility is what opens us to greater wisdom, not the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of God. Humility is also necessary to go to heaven. This is not saying humility or works earn our way to heaven. Salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. But it is to say, if there's one evidence of salvation in a person that they're going to heaven, according to God, it's that they are humble. There is something of humility in their lives, without which there is not evidence that we have been converted to Jesus Christ. Biblical humility. You, you simply cannot know God and not have humility. Right? Because the saving knowledge of God breaks a person of their puffed-upness, of the false pretense of self-exaltation. It tenderizes us and makes us more humble. So if there's anything that will serve us well, sailing into 2023, if there's one thing that's going to come in super handy, super handy in every relationship. Humility is the grease that smooths relationships, relationships in the home. Relationships outside of the home, in the church, the workplace, it's humility. This will serve you best. Humility will be your most useful and needed tool in 2023. Because we live in a world that is broken, we all contribute to that brokenness, and pride is the chief brokenness of the brokenness. And pride is not something esoteric out there, some boogeyman external to us. It's in the heart of every human being, including Christians. And as I was studying this, I want to assure you that I'm not preaching this as someone who has arrived in this by any sense of the word. We're all students, especially me, under the word of God. So this text will help us here. John chapter 13, follow along. I'm going to read verse 1 to verse 17. John chapter 13, verse 1 to 17. God's inerrant, inspired an authoritative word reads, John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he tied it around himself. Then he poured water into 
the wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel which he had tied around himself. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing, you do not realize now, but you'll understand afterwards. Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet, ever. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the teacher, excuse me, the Lord and the teacher wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who, who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. This is the reading of God's word. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John, who spent his years with Jesus during his earthly ministry, writes infallibly and errantly to give us an extraordinary account of life, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John saw, John watched, John, he heard, he was with Jesus. Jesus gave him and his brother a nickname. Jesus gave a lot of people nicknames for very important reasons. His nickname was Son of Thunder. And it's not because he was so awesomely thunderous and tough and great, but because pretty sort of the opposite. They were thunderous at times in their prideful demeanor. What nickname might Jesus give you or me if he was to give us nicknames? John 13 to 17 is a section where John 1 to 12 is more about the public ministry of Jesus. Jesus walking around in the Palestinian region in Israel, doing miracles, proving his deity, that sort of thing. But in John 13 to 17, he turns a corner. It's more the time of his private ministry, sitting down and having literally a come to Jesus discussion with his disciples saying, guys, here's some very, very important things I want you to learn before you head out and through me, by my grace, you really overturned the world, the Mediterranean world and the world after that, through the true faith, Christianity. Things that are to become normative, not only for you guys as disciples, but all who will become my people. And so this is what's happening in John 13. This is the night before he's crucified, and he leaves us with one of the most challenging but important and foundational messages in life. The essential aspect which we never perfect, and out of which we never grow, humility. We'll see five headings here, if you're taking notes, five hooks to hang our thoughts on. And the first four really center on the character of Christ, which emphasizes his humility, and then nails our fifth heading, how important humility is for us, who would dare name the high name 
of Jesus for those of us who by God's grace are going to heaven. So these first, carrot, these first points are all about the greatness of Christ, which just show his humility. Number one, we'll see number one, the love of Christ, which is humbling in itself, that God would love people like me. The love of Christ, number one, the love of Christ. Look at verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, so again, here's the the setting, the Last Supper, sometimes it's called, Jesus is going to be nailed to a cross, which he knows in a few hours. And this is what he chooses chooses to do before he's crucified. Jesus knowing, verse one, that his hour had come. A lot of times as you read the Gospel of John, you hear Jesus saying, my hour hasn't come yet. You know, people are trying to to execute him because over and over he's saying he's God, the only God, and there's no other God. This is why the religious Jews are trying to kill him because that was considered blasphemy, capital punishment in their culture, and somehow they don't. And Jesus is saying, my hour hasn't come yet. What hour? The hour for which he came, the hour for which we celebrate Christmas, the hour for which he is in a manger. Why does he get a body? Because God can't die. He's infinite spirit. So to die, he needs to take mortal humanity to himself, which he does in the incarnation, all for the hour of his crucifixion, so that he can be punished for the sins of all who would put their faith in him and suffer as a wrath-bearing sacrifice in our place under the judgment of God, so that by the grace and mercy of God, we can be forgiven. That is his hour. His hour has now Come, he is going to be crucified in a few hours. He planned this, John 10, 17. For this reason, Jesus said, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. He says, no one takes it away from me. I lay it down by my own initiative, John 10, 18. This is, my Father and I planned this before eternity. He is saying, this is the love of Jesus. And then he says, it says in verse 13, His hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father. That's a statement of deity, that he's going to go back from whence he came, which is heaven, to God the Father, Jesus being God the Son, the triune God. And it says this, notice this last phrase, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What a statement. It is true that God loves all people, including those who will never believe in him and never give him the time of day. Matthew 5, 45, Jesus argues and says, as instructing believers to love their enemies, he says, because even your father in heaven gives rain and sun to the unrighteous, to those who do not love him. So he has a love for all people. However, there's a special love, the love of his own, as it's phrased here, that's a greater love. He loved them to the end. And it's right for this love to be exclusive and higher for those who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. Just like it's right for a good dad, a good father, he is to have a love for all people. However, he's to have a greater love for his wife and for his children. This is how it is with God. Absolutely. His own, those he saves, those for whom he died, John 10, 15. His sheep that he knows. They were in the world, as it says here, in the world. The the world doesn't mean the physical earth. It means the system, this globe where the majority of people are hostile 
towards that which God values, especially and including humility, especially and including Christ and the lowliness that Jesus commands and exemplified. It says he loved them to the end. That word there, Greek, that was given to us in the New Testament, it, it, it has the idea of completion. He loved them to completion. It, it, it encompasses all, yes, till the end of his work, him completing his work, but it also means he completely loves us. There's nothing in his love that is lacking. He loves us untowards perfect completion constantly. And there's no qualification that doesn't say, well, he loves us, he loved his own, just as long as they weren't sinning that day. Just as long as they weren't irritating to him that day. No, it says no qualification like that. He loved impetuous, loudmouthed Peter to the end. He loved John and James, the sons of thunder, to the end. He loved Matthew, who was a tax collector, to the end, to perfect completion. And if you have put faith in Jesus Christ, his love will encompass you like the Pacific Ocean encompasses a, a little tiny fish. And his love will follow you and pursue you in completion to the end. It's the love of Christ. Number two, the submission of Christ. The submission of Christ. Verse two. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. And you'll notice how juxtaposed this verse is, verse 2, with verse 1. And verse 3 is just sandwiched in contrasting verse 1 and 3. Jesus loving, verse 3, knowing all things. We'll get there in a minute. In verse 2, the devil has possessed and is puppeteering Judas, like the devil does to many people in the world, in socially acceptable and socially unacceptable ways. This is the submission of Christ, submitting to the sovereign plan which he and his father planned before creation. The devil is doing what he does, and we all do well to remember what Martin Luther said in the 16th century. He said, the devil is God's devil. The devil can wreak havoc and get into the hearts and minds of those who have yet to receive Christ only because there's a spiritual vacancy there. But God is still sovereign. Jesus is submitting on purpose, not because he's being forced to. It reminds us, when there's a spiritual vacancy in somebody's heart, that the forces of darkness can do just bad things. When the Holy Spirit, by faith in Jesus, takes up residence in the heart, this is irreversible, and no, they can never be whatever you want to call it, demon-possessed, devil-possessed, whatever. This cannot happen to someone who is regenerate. Judas, sadly, was one of those two common tragedies. He sat in a pew, as it were, for three years. I mean, he went camping with Jesus for three years. He's in Jesus' seminary for three years. And he's one of those all too common situations where inside he's not crucifying his pride. He's hearing, but he's not heeding. He's tolerating that aggravation, that chafing, that fleshliness, allowing himself to think highly of himself, never surrendering, surrendering to Christ. He's one of those who 
cleans the outside of the cup, but never deals with the inside of the cup. And so those are the kind of places where the devil takes a swift and welcome residence. Satan puppeteers him to do the greatest sin, but Jesus knows this. And he's submitting to it. He's allowing it to play out. He's not going off on Judas and, how dare you do this to me? Don't you know who I am? He's just quietly submitting. The God who made the stars, laid in a manger, submits to the atrocious sin of his betrayer. This is the submission of Christ. Number three, number three, the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. Look at verse three. Jesus, knowing three things are said about the supremacy of Christ, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. This is the supremacy, the supremacy excuse me, of Christ. First, it says he knows Excuse me, he's, the Father had given him all things. What does that mean? It means everything. It means Jesus has the title deed, as it were, to every human being and everything that is a thing in the universe. He is owner of all of us and all of it. And it's not, it doesn't matter what your spiritual persuasion is. Everybody is under his sovereign supremacy and will stand before him one day. Second, it says Jesus came from God the Father, which we saw in verse 1, which is to say he existed before he is born. We talked about that in Colossians 1 in our Christmas Eve celebration. He's God the Son, eternal. And three, he is returning to God. After he rises from the dead, he is going to go back to God where he is right now today in 2023, January 1st, reigning at the right hand of the Father as Lord And king, this is the supremacy of Christ. Number three, number four. So all that on the greatness of Christ. And then there's this number four, the humility of Christ. The humility of Christ. This will be found in verse four to 11. This is where things just, the values of the world clash. The value of natural humanity that has fallen and sinful Come smashing and not mixing like oil and water with the values of God. The humility of Christ, verse 4 to 11. Look at verse 4. And Jesus, he got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he tied it around himself. Let's put ourselves in the room that evening and wear the sandals that were worn in the first century then. The disciples are watching this Jesus gets up, where, he's, where is he going? He lays aside his outer garment. In first century ancient East culture, you had not clothes, but a piece of clothing. You had an outer garment, like a big robe. He lays it aside, and then they had their undergarment that they would wear. And the, the, the perplexity of the disciples is increasing as they watch this because then he takes a towel and girds himself. He wraps it around himself like he's ready for work. And at this point, the show-off, proud disciples are stunned because in ancient East and Mediterranean culture, removing one's outer cloak and wrapping yourself with a towel around your waist identified you as one thing and only one thing. 
It is the thing that no one in that culture wanted to be thought of. It's the identity that nobody in the Mediterranean world wanted to have for themselves. No one wanted to be seen as this thing. A lowly slave. A household slave. The help. The servant. They saw that and they knew immediately what it was. It's like if you're you're in a a polished, posh high-rise in New York City and you're walking down these marble floors, you know, on the 78th floor and there are people with expensive suits and nice shoes gently tapping the floor, talking about their sophisticated business and all of a, all of a sudden you, you, you see a guy coming and he has a plunger and he has toilet cleaner and a toilet bowl brush, and some rags, your first thought of him is not, oh, that's the CEO. You see that, and boom, it's an identity marker. It's just how it is. In the first century, you saw that towel girded, and it was like, oh. This type of attire was looked down upon by Jews and Gentiles in the Mediterranean world. It's how it was. When you came into a first century Mediterranean home, you saw a person wrapped in the towel around their waist right away. Oh. It was the person lowest on the social totem pole. People weren't thinking about for their Christmas party, I want to have them over to make myself feel good. People weren't thinking, I'm gonna, I want to go to lunch so I can be seen with that person to kind of bolster my wicked self-actualization. Verse 5. Then he, this is God, poured into the wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he had tied around himself. Jesus assumes the posture of the lowliest individual, foot washing, was very important then, however. In the ancient East, this is before the days of pavement, street cleaners, storm gutters. The, the, the roads then in Israel were made of dirt. And instead of cars going up and down the pavement, there were livestock and, and cows and, and oxen and, and donkeys. And again, with, without the nice technology of street sweepers that, you know, we have those things that on the, after the 4th of July Jackson Hole Parade, they zip quickly down. I mean, they're, they're on the tail end of the parade. It's amazing because there have been horses in the parade and the horses leaving their manure on the street. And that's not tolerable to a sophisticated 21st century Western people. We can't tolerate that smell. So these street sweepers zip down and take care of it. They didn't have that in first century ancient East Rhodes. So the manure piled up and piled up. And what shoes did they wear then? Not muck boots. They didn't have muck boots. They wore sandals. Every person wore sandals. So their feet were feet feet. I mean, they were feety feet. They were disgusting. So when you would come into somebody's home, 
sophisticated company, you brought manure mud all over your feet. Not only that, when they had a meal together, so watch out for the, the supposedly sophisticated National Geographic things that always come out on Easter, interestingly, that talk about, well, we found new gospels and maybe Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. What, what is chuckling about these, some of these supposedly expert documentaries from National Geographic, I saw one not long ago, is they have Jesus and his disciples sitting in chairs around a table that's this tall. Those hadn't been invented yet. In a first century ancient East meal, the table was about this tall. And, and they would recline. When you see that word reclining a table, they would typically lean down on their left arm and they would reach and eat with their right arm and, and, and grab the, you know, the, 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 the shawarma and the falafel and whatever with their right arm and eat with their hand. Now, if you're reclining around a table on your left arm, that means, you know, like, just visualize it. Where are your feet going? The guy below you, the guy next to you, they're, they're right by his face. Imagine trying to eat, you know, your, your falafel with first century feet feet, 12 inches from your nose. This is why, why foot washing was essential. Every time you would enter to go to dinner, go to someone's place or whatever, the feet had to be washed. But it was considered the most lowly, degrading task in the Mediterranean world, the task of slaves. Well-to-do families would have a household slave. You'd walk in to go to their house. The first thing that would happen, just like, you know, today someone takes your coat, takes your jacket, can I hang that up for you? The first thing they would do is, oh, here's where you can go get your feet washed. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it for each other. They would never stoop so low to do that. Someone considered a superior in social status, they would never, ever, ever wash the feet of someone considered less important, less wealthy, less sophisticated, who didn't know as many people in town. Do you know him and so-and-so? Oh, I know them. We're, we're friends and you would never wash someone's feet who is considered less sophisticated than you. To emphasize this, I was studying this. A study was done of ancient Jewish and Greco-Roman writings during this time where foot washing, all the documents of foot washing were looked at. Not a single instant in all of the documents, not a single instance, is there an occasion where a superior washed the feet of an inferior. And here's God in the flesh washing the feet of sinful humans. The one of highest supremacy, highest glory. The one who can keep track of the 30 trillion cells that are in your human body. The one who made your spinal cord, your eyes, who thought of optic nerves and the digestive system and the immune system and thought of the idea of you know, helper T cells. The one who thought of the idea of stars and nuclear fusion. And here he is washing feet, feet. Verse 6. So verse 6 to 11, verse 6 to 10 is Peter kind of being Peter here. He, he comes to Peter and Peter has this sort of like false humility, this kind of humble but kind of not. 
And he said to him, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? They should have been washing his, and they should have been washing each other's right when they got in the door. Jesus answered, I mean, you, you see how undesirable of a task this is by the fact that they're, they're enjoying the Passover meal 12, 12 inches from your nose, and it's like, I'm not going to wash his feet. I don't care. I, I would rather tolerate that smell than wash someone else's feet. Verse 7, Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing now, you don't realize, but you'll understand afterwards. In the disciples, in our, our immaturity at times, and just our own pilgrimage to the Lord and sanctification, isn't, isn't that how it is often? The Lord, as it were, has to say, you don't understand really why I'm doing what I'm doing. And we ask the Lord, Lord, why is this happening in life right now? And we would do well to revisit this verse, which says, you'll understand later. Peter will learn later, because in 1 Peter 5.5, about 30 years after this, he writes, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet, ever, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you're clean, but not all of you. A metaphor here for salvation. He's saying, look, if, if you've put your faith in me, you've trusted in me for forgiveness of sins to go to heaven, you don't need to like re-get saved every day. The whole body washing, but you do need to have your daily feet washed. He's a spiritual truth here. The idea of checking in with God, confessing your sins to him as a believer, but you don't need to get like resaved each day. And then verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. What's this talking about? Judas is there. He would go to John and James, the sons of thunder, Peter, sometimes called the disciple with a foot-shaped mouth, Matthew, and then he comes to his betrayer. And he washes his feet, the guy who is betraying him. And he washes his feet. He takes the demeanor of a slave before Judas. What kind, of, what kind of implication should that have on our lives as Christians? Like, what, what should that mean? That as we walk around and live life, what, 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 how should that change us? Our marriages, as a single person, others in the body of Christ who, we, I don't like that, they offended me. What, like, what, what kind of bearing should that have? Number five, that was the humility of Christ. Number five, now the command of Christ, and Jesus, Jesus clinches it here. The command from Christ. Number five, the command from Christ. Verse 12 to 17. Everything that the Lord is doing comes to this. To this lesson that is to be normative and mandatory for all who would go to heaven and profess the name of Christ. Look at verse 12. So, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, 
he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? And, and so what's going to happen here is Jesus is going to give the single most important and the single most difficult command for the Christian. There's a sense in which you can shelve all other commands and do this one and just focus on this one. And when you do that, all other commands will come into play and you will do them. It's one of the more difficult and probably one of the more neglected commands in the body of Christ. The neglect of which gets tolerated way too much. So to emphasize how big of a deal this is, Jesus does two things here. To say, look, I really mean this. This isn't you know, something you can just kind of read in your morning quiet time and then forget about it the rest of the day. The, the, the command is divided up in two ways in verse 12 to 17. First in verse 12 to the first half of verse 14, he's going to give like an illustration. He's going to give a greater to lesser illustration or argument. And then in the last half of verse 14 and through verse 17, he'll actually command this command four, ta- four different ways. It's a very powerful way. Instead of Jesus just saying, hey, do this, be humble. He, he illustrates it with an argument from greater to lesser, from verse 12 to 14, and then gives the command in four different ways at the end of verse 14 to verse 17. Look there at verse 13. So he's asked, do you know what I've done here? Well, you washed our feet. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. Teacher, the teacher, not just like, oh, your occupation is a teacher, but capital T, the teacher and the Lord L. It's a claim to deity. You call me, you understand me to be God the Son and the Messiah, and I am. Jesus, all over the New Testament, claims to be God and backs it up. I am. Verse 14, now here's the argument. He wants them to think a little bit, and us. If I then, the, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Right? If he's saying, we all understand that this, in, in our Mediterranean culture here, this is a thing that superiors never do for inferiors. I being your superior and, you know, he, he's not just like a, a high-rolling Mediterranean guy. He's not just like pro-council. He, he's not just governor. He's God. If I'm this guy who's, I'm also God, washed your feet. What, what should that say about your attitude? You ought. Now here's where he gives the command in four different ways. Here's the first one. You ought. First time he gives the command. There'll be three more. You ought to wash one another's feet. The word ought isn't like a suggestion. It's not, this is the ideal you don't really have to do it. It's just, you're like, you're like a super Christian if you do it. No, the Greek word means obligation. You are obligated. This is mandatory. Again, Jesus isn't saying, you know, you can read this in your quiet time and go off from your quiet time and pat yourself on the back for reading your Bible that day, but never think about this. This is thinking, living, obligatory demeanor. 
Now, a couple things about this when he says you ought to wash one another's feet. He doesn't mean you literally have to go around with a basin and, you know, with your ivory soap and scrub each other's feet. You might do that. That, It might be weird, but how do we know? How do we... How do we know, because there's an argument in, in some, in, in various Christian cultures, subcultures, that like this is as important as like the Lord's Supper, which we're going to have in a little bit, or baptism, the two ordinances, that this is like an ordinance. How do we know it's not? Later in the New Testament, nor anywhere in that very important, like immediately post-apostolic New Testament literature, never is this ever mentioned as an ordinance or a rite, R-I-T-E. It's never talked about or prescribed as such. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two sort of ordinances. And if you think about it too, that would be too easy if foot, foot washing was a, made a ritual and a rite, right? Because we humans, we can do a ritual, a spiritual thing, pretend to look spiritual, go through the motions, but never really repent and crucify the monster of pride that still lurks in all of our hearts. If it's just a ritual of water and towels, all that does is compartmentalize spirituality. And there's lots of things Jesus doesn't like and compartmentalize spirituality. That's one of them. He does not like that. Read Matthew 23. No, Jesus isn't looking for us to grind out some pretend spirituality with a towel No, the idea is our hearts, our thinking, our speaking about each other, our thinking about each other when that person isn't around in private and in public. How do I think about those people, the one another? By the way, this is a one another command. The Greek word one another means another of the same kind. So this is like an in-house command, Christian toward Christian. If If you're married and your spouse is a Christian, Spouse to spouse, husband to wife, or to children, and church member to church member. See, our flesh, here's what our flesh wants to do with this command. Put on an appearance of spirituality, and that's it. But Jesus is commanding an all-day, everyday heart attitude of tremendous humility towards one another. A deep humility towards each other towards our brothers and sisters in the Christian community. How are you doing with this? Jesus says our our, our lives, uh, Christians, Christians are to live with the deepest humility towards one another. And when Jesus says, he's looking at the disciples and he says, you are obligated to wash one another's feet, this would be extremely difficult because, again, the disciples did not get up at the meal to even wash Jesus' feet. And if he asked them to, they probably would get up and, all right, I'll wash your feet. But they're never going to wash each other's feet. And this is a profound thing to consider here. What Jesus is doing. It would be unthinkable for them to wash each other's feet. And that's exactly why Jesus is saying this to them. They could muster up a little spirituality to wash Jesus' feet, but one another, lowering themselves before each other, and this is the point. This is the point. One of the great ways sin and fallenness of the human heart 
and pride plays out is this subtle refusal to put myself below and humble myself before that person. Little stratification games that the flesh plays, a refusal to take the lower role and invite criticism into my life from someone who will tell me the truth and to humble myself before others, foot-washing servanthood towards one another. The flesh doesn't like that. Most professing believers are willing to, proverbially speaking, wash Jesus' feet. Most believers will do that, proverbially speaking. In other words, what do we mean by that? In other words, most professing believers can conjure up enough and some spirituality to seem spiritual towards Jesus. Which is to say, it's not that difficult to do things like read my Bible in the morning, you know, read my, my little devotional in the early hours of the day, listen to a sermon while I work out or go for a run in the morning. It's not that hard to do that. Or to talk about how God is great and to say praise God and, and to tell Jesus he's great in prayer. That's not super hard. And those are good things to do and essential things to do as long as they're actually from the heart. However, what Jesus is doing here, this text is saying true Christian spirituality is not just washing Jesus' feet, proverbially speaking, but the dirty feet, proverbially speaking, of other believers in your life. The hard ones, the difficult ones, the smelly ones, the ones who have feet feet, to come before them and humble yourselves with a foot-washing servanthood towards them. That's real spirituality. Anyone can get up and read their Bible and go out in the day and say, oh, I've done a great thing. I've, I've, I've had my quiet time. Look how spiritual I am. I, 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 I listen to a, you know, a John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul sermon, and that's good and we should do that. But that's not where spirituality ends. That, that's just step one. Other people is, is spirituality. Every command in the New Testament funnels and, and comes down and bottlenecks at this foot-washing humility. How are we doing with that? The New Testament teaches real Christian spirituality and maturity is being humble in the privacy of my own mind about and towards other people and then having that move out towards real foot-washing humility towards people, those other Christians, smelly Christians in my life that I may not naturally get along with. It's easy for me to kind of braggingly say, well, I'm reading this book and, you know, I'm praying and, you know, doing my Bible reading plan, which is all good. So what? How are we doing in washing each other's feet? This is a one another command. Washing each other's feet, this command Jesus is giving, proverbially means you don't isolate yourself from other people because it's a one another. One another's require, lo and behold, others. We don't like play the calculated thing where you know, I'll show enough spirituality, but then I'm going to eject so I don't actually have to wash anyone's feet. Oh, I'll talk about how I read that verse in my Bible, but I won't actually come under you and have 
slave-lowering, foot-washing humility to confess my sin, be a humble person, be transparent, let others get to know me, let others see that my feet are dirty and they smell because all of us do. Our, our like, private spirituality is really no spirituality at all. There's a sense in which it's, it can be no spirituality at all. A, a, a private, quiet time, you know, I do church by myself and, and this kind of nonsense, that can be so selfish. I pretend spirituality. And God says, you know what, I... If you look, I mean, look, if you if you're to like write down every command in the New Testament, they require other people and involvement in people's lives and transparency and humility, and it's hard. How are we doing? How are you doing? How am I doing in this foot washing humility towards one another? Something interesting that commentators point out here about this passage, washing each other's feet seems to have become a phrase in the church, in the early church, and this attitude of foot washing became a qualification for an older godly woman in the early church. 1 Timothy 5.10. You can look at it later. it's, it's, It's talking about, in other words, a woman who stood out in a church who stood out in maturity, in dignity, to be someone who's like a, like, like a teacher of women. She had a foot-washing servant mentality. She saw herself as below others, lower than others, a deep humility. Fascinating thing. And, and, the, and it's not like the men are exempt, right? Just an interesting historical point. Verse 15, Jesus says, I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. That, that Greek word there for an example, it has the idea of a pattern. A pattern, you know, when someone wanted to like sew their own shirt or something, they would start out with a pattern and kind of like follow that pattern. Back in the day when my sister and I were kids and we'd go on long road trips, uh, my dad had his 1970s Pinto station wagon, uh, an ugly brown color. And we would go on these long trips and, you know, we didn't have like DVDs in the car or, you know, Game Boys or iPads or gadgets. We had our Flintstones coloring book and our Scooby-Doo and Flintstones, you know, workbooks. And in those Flintstone workbooks, workbooks, they would have like connect the dot things. And, you know, you could like draw a picture of old Fred Flintstone, you know, with Barney. And, but you had to connect the dots, Right? You'd connect the dots, and you know, if you went to 1, and if you didn't do like I did, you'd do 1, then 13, then 29. If you didn't do that, actually connected them in order, you'd have a picture of old Fred when you got done. You, the, the dots laid out something to follow. This is the idea of this word. He, he's kind of laid out a pattern to follow. Foot washing, servanthood, Humility. Jesus is saying, beloved, I've laid out the dots for you here, how to live a life of Christian maturity and spirituality. 
follow the pattern. Verse 16, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. You, you get the idea. Again, he's emphasizing, kind of how he did before, the greater to the lesser. Why does he do this again? Because our flesh doesn't like this command. So Jesus is saying, in, in effect, if you won't do this, if you, like, like if there are people within the Christian community and, and you won't lower yourself and have a foot-washing humility towards them, then what you're saying is you're better than me. If you're the type of person who says, yeah, I might do this and that, but to, to, to that person in the Christian community and that person, I, I'm not going to, I won't be humble towards them. Jesus is, saying that, is, Jesus is saying then what you're saying is, yeah, Jesus, you might be God, but I'm above you. I'm better than you. I'm better than you, though you're God. I'm more exalted than you, uh, even though you're God. You, you, you may have come from heaven and majestically died on the cross and risen from the grave, but I'm not going to humble myself. I'm better than you. I'm superior to you. And we're not above anybody, beloved. We're not above anybody. Jesus gives us the identity of foot-washing slaves here. And then as a matter of fact, in places like Philippians 1.1, James 1.1, other places, the, the New Testament writers identify themselves slaves of Christ Jesus. Fascinating thing in Revelation 22, verse 3, in heaven, that, that verse, it says, there'll be no more curse, praise God for that, no more death. And then it also says, his slaves will serve him, will serve Jesus. Doulos, the Greek word for slave. What does that have to do? Part of what makes heaven heavenly is getting to be a slave and serve Jesus there. So coming round about to John 13, those who are going to heaven will have something of the servant attitude unto Jesus Christ this side of heaven as well. If you don't like serving Jesus now, then really heaven's not going to be the place for you. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can all put, it, put our faith in him and ask forgiveness. Jesus concludes, verse 17, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Why, why does he say that? Because it's so easy to be professional Bible readers, professional sermon listeners. And Jesus says, I want you to take those devotions that you're reading and that knowledge you're hearing and the sermons you're listening to and all the stuff that's accumulating in your mind and let it all bottleneck to one thing above all other things. Foot washing, servanthood lowly humility. You do that, Philippians 2.5, you do that, everything else will fall into place. And may God give us grace to do so. You're blessed if you do these things. That word means happy. Do these things. Do what things? Foot washing, slave ship mentality of deep, deep humility. You're blessed. You see here, Jesus says, this is the key to happiness. You want... And this grinds. This grinds against our natural senses. But he says, you, you got to give up the fight. And you want to be blessed. You want to be happy. Fall into this. And the Lord's Supper that we'll take today together reminds us of that. That Jesus' humility didn't just stop with a towel and a basin. Th th this is like a smaller 
thing compared to the cross. That was a, the, the cross is a emphatically, exponentially greater humility. However, God is asking you to humble yourself in some way in your life right now, and he is. And however, he will ask you in 2023 to humble yourself, and he will. He won't ask you to humble yourself as much as Jesus did on the cross. And, And the elements here, the bread and the cup, represent his body and his blood. And the reason that we take this isn't because like, you go to heaven if you eat some food or drink it. It's, it's a memorial. And it's, and it's a way of showing with, with like, physical things, I, I identify my faith is in him. I take him in. I ingest him. I want to be one with him because I want to go to heaven because I love him, because I want forgiveness, because I know I need to be saved or because he has saved me. And I'm grateful that he has done so, that the table kind of proclaims his death and that great humility. And we cannot take one step in true humility until we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior by faith in him. Um, I'll have the musicians come up here in a minute. We can all come up and take if and when we're ready. If, if you have never bowed the knee of faith to Jesus Christ, what a, what a great day to do so. What a wonderful time to start out the new year. There is no better way to start the year than to just push control, alt, delete in the happiest way on your life and to be saved and to put faith in Jesus Christ and to trust this Savior who humbled himself under you by dying for your sins on the cross. There's no other way to get to heaven our works will never be good enough. God commands perfection. Matthew 5, 48. Jesus, in effect, says, I know you can't be perfect. That's why I died for you, because I love you. And I'm a humble Savior and a gentle God. And he showed that not only in the foot washing, but even more on the cross when he died. You say, how do I get that forgiveness? How do I get to heaven? How do I make that Savior my own? You put faith in him. You believe in him. It's an act not of the hands, but of the heart where you put all your confidence for right standing with God and righteousness and eternity in heaven, all of it, not in yourself, not in your resume, not in anything else, but in Jesus Christ, this humble Savior. And I pray you would do that today. And if you do, you can come partake. If you already have put faith in Jesus Christ, this is a time for us as well. However, if you have something against somebody, if you have some unconfessed sin, some ways in which... You're not going to, you know, take this obedient step of foot-washing humility. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three and following tell us, don't take of the table so as to blaspheme Christ. But the good news is we can confess that to God and ask his forgiveness and just come partake of it and be reminded of his love for us. We'll give you some time. The musicians will play. Come grab it when you're ready. And then I'll, get, I'll direct us and we'll all take it together.